1: The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today we'll speak with Adam Hochschuld about guns in Trump's America. Adam will talk about visiting a gun show and about why the Koch brothers are major funders of the NRA, even though they're not especially enthusiastic about guns. Also, Gary Young returns to Muncie to talk to Trump supporters there a year after Trump took office. Kerry spent the month leading up to the 2016 election in that Indiana Rust Belt city. But first, the Trump re-election nightmare and how we can stop it. Tom Frank has been thinking about that. Of course, he's the author of several books, most recently Listen Liberal, and of course the classic What's the Matter with Kansas? He's been a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's and a contributor to the New York Times and The Nation. Tom, welcome back.
0: John, it's good to be here.
1: You have a description of our president that opens your new essay in Harper's. I wonder if you could read the beginning to us.
0: Okay, so I'm describing Donald Trump here. And I say, he is deeply unpopular, the biggest buffoon any of us have ever seen in the White House. He manages to disgrace the office nearly every single day. He insults our intelligence with his blustering rhetoric. He endorses racial stereotypes and makes common cause with bigots. He has succeeded in offending countless foreign governments. He has no idea what a president is supposed to be or do, and perhaps luckily, he has no clue how to govern. Of the handful of things he has actually managed to achieve, nearly all are toxic.
1: And let me add to that, I'm sure you've heard that. Robert Mueller is tightening the news that Stormy Daniels is going to be hard to stop, that Trump's lawyers are all quitting. And yet, you think this horrible president could be reelected, and that there is, you say, one clear and undeniable path for Trump to win in 2020. What is the path? Yes,
0: but that's right. I do say that. But I also. I'm thinking of my Chicago school economist here. I have a whole bunch of assumptions <laughs> that you have to grant me. Okay. And the, the, the first one is that he doesn't get impeached. Yes. If we take that away, uh, if we take that off the table, and I think there's good reason to believe that he won't get impeached. Uh, and then a couple other things. If he, if he avoids a disastrous war, if he uh, isn't overthrown in a military coup. You know, okay, <laughs> okay, You give me all that. Yes, okay. I think he has a really good chance of getting reelected.
1: And why? What is his path?
0: Uh, it's really simple, John. So it's, you know me and how I think about uh, politics and issues of social class, and it has to do with the economy and how well it's doing. Unemployment is, is extremely low right now. You know, the economy is basically booming. And for me, the sort of formative experience in American politics was, the 19, just because of my age, was the 80s and the 90s and especially the the Bill Clinton administration. And here you had a guy who people actually have trouble remembering what he did as president, like what he got done, but they do remember it was good times. And they remember that period with a kind of golden haze over it, you know, it was mm-hmm. universal prosperity. And uh, you know, it was a magical time almost. And he was massively popular Bill Clinton was towards the end of his administration. This is not because of anything he did. It wasn't because of NAFTA or welfare reform or, you know, bank deregulation. These were not particularly popular things. Uh, it was because the economy was booming. I'm not just referring to the stock market. Uh, as we all know, there was this incredible stock market bubble in the late 1990s, and it gave this kind of illusion, you know, it was, it was a bubble. Classic bubble scenario, the NASDAQ, the uh, uh, tech stocks, that kind of thing. But something else happened in the late 1990s and that is that wages grew for the first and only time since the 1970s. I mean real wages for average workers grew uh, when adjusted for inflation and that is something that used to be the country that you and I grew up in John that used to be common that happened every year. Nowadays that never happens. The Bill Clinton late 1990s was the one period when it when it in fact took place.
1: And you think it's possible that wages could go up in the Trump era. How would that happen?
0: The means that used to drive them up back in the 1970s and before are basically off the table. Uh, Having strong unions, uh, minimum wage increases, those things are not going to happen. However, wages will go up by themselves if unemployment gets low enough and stays low enough for long enough. And what I mean is, so if the economy runs hot, runs at maximum capacity for a couple years, wages will start to grow all by themselves, because employers will be bidding for labor, bidding for workers. And here's the thing, John. You know, I talked to a bunch of economists to write this story. We're almost there right now. There's, I mean, there's lots of signs out there that wages are starting to grow. Unemployment has been low for quite a while in one county in wisconsin uh... unemployment is so low and the job market is so tight that employers are are hiring people straight out of prison wow. uh... you know, yeah, I know walmart has actually raised its uh, uh... starting starting wage which is like an incredible thing you know walmart these are the guys that hold the line on wages no matter what happens there's, there's all sorts of evidence like this So this is close to happening right now. The question is, what will Trump do to make sure it happens? And Trump is, you know, Trump is, uh, as I said, a buffoon and a a scoundrel and a national embarrassment. But he does get this. This is something he understands. We know he understands it because he talked about it all the time on the campaign trail and because of the the sort of choices that he has made as president. For example, the guy that he appointed to chair the Federal Reserve. He did not appoint the kind of guy who's going to jack up interest rates like Paul Volcker back in the 1970s. That's That appears to be something that's not going to happen. It, it, it would be stupid to try to guess what the Federal Reserve is going to do. But my uh, my opinion is that he's going to let this thing roll, and Trump wants it to roll. And then you think of all the other things that he has said he wants to do that would just add fuel to the fire.
1: The one thing that would clearly help get wages up in the short term is a... $3 billion infrastructure plan, which Trump promised us and now has betrayed that promise with this ridiculous thing about the states and the localities and the private sector is going to have to pay 80% of it. We're not not going to get the infrastructure program that really would work to get wages up. So it seems to me the most likely thing is that Trump will do nothing at all. To help the oh, working but
0: but but think about the infrastructure. So it was three trillion, by the $3 way. Three trillion. He's really, he's really dreaming big when he talks about the infrastructure plan. I still think that he will do something along those lines. And my my argument is, even if he does it in the crappy way that you just outlined, where a, where the federal government only does twenty percent of the spending and they they slough the rest off onto state and local and private industry, even if you do it that way, it's still going to have a stimulative effect. It's still going to have an effect on employment. And it, here's the crazy thing, John, we're, we're almost at full employment now. I mean, we're real damn close to full employment right now in America. You do something like that and start just open the uh, federal sluices. <laughs> Can you imagine the effect? You're going to have a labor shortage
1: and there's one other thing that Trump is doing that may indeed help raise wages, something that we're against. but if he staunches immigration, that's going to contribute to rising wages because it's going to limit the labor pool.
0: Yeah, and that's by the way, a lot of people have talked about how strange it is to um, you know to want to propose this uh, you know this massive infrastructure spending campaign and and then at the same time, You'd be cracking down on on immigration and trying to trying to trying to reduce immigration because you're going to need those people, or at least that's what Wall Street says. All I'm saying here is that there are any number of things that the that are within the president's power: trade agreements, companies are able, still able to offshore stuff. You know, it was a big issue in the last election. It's starting to come up a little bit with his um, the steel tariffs that he announced, but if trump does something to even slightly crack down on offshoring yeah you're going to see a tighter labor market and you're going to see wages grow uh... another thing i mentioned is kind of many new deal infrastructure programs here and they're localized things uh... for example one that's been going on that he could expand if he felt like it if he was smart would be uh... in flint michigan just go rolling in there with a whole lot of federal money and hire a whole lot of of, of union plumbers and pipe fitters <laughs> yes and i mean it would be it would be incredible you just think about that he and and he would win michigan next time
1: so let's talk about what the democrats can do to stop him uh, of course we have robert Mueller. we have stormy daniels do we need, well we think we do do we do we need anything <laughs> do we need anything more than the two of them
0: I was thinking about that this morning when I was reading all the headlines about Stormy Daniels. The period when Bill Clinton was at his most popular is when he was actively being impeached. <laughs> Do you remember? Yes, that? yes. Being impeached by Congress for lying about his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Yes. Uh, so I don't know if Stormy Daniels, how that's going to play. I mean,. It, You'd think a president having an illicit affair with a, with a porn star, that's pretty bad. Lesser things have undone many other, <laughs> other presidents. I don't know if that's, if that's going to hurt him at all. We're going to find out.
1: So what should the, the Democrats do if, if, if we can't count on Stormy Daniels? What can we do?
0: Well, every Democrat that I talk to, and, I, and I've talked to a lot of them, they're counting on Mueller to deliver the midterms for them. Yes. Everybody, I've, everybody I know is. That's just that's this is going to happen and we don't have to do anything. But the, the problem with that way of thinking and, and I mean, let's be clear, John, this has worked for Democrats before. The famous Watergate class in Congress in 1974 was entirely the doing of Richard Nixon and and the Watergate scandal. And the Democrats are basically expecting that to happen again. Yes. That actually may take place. I don't want to cuckoo that or, or deny it or anything, it may work out that way. The problem is that it, is, uh, it's, it, it breeds this kind of passiveness among Democrats where they never have to do anything, they never have to do any kind of introspection or think about their own message, you know, except for in a public relations kind of way. They just have to sharpen their presentation and everything is going to be fine and they never have to change anything. They may succeed in the coming midterms, but that's a recipe for disaster in the long term. If it's not Trump getting reelected three years from now, there's going to be another Trump. The Republicans are never going to retreat from what this guy showed them in 2016. They now understand that that's how you beat the Democrats. Everybody gets that. And the next Trump is not going to be so vulgar. He's not going to have affairs with um, porn stars. He's not going to pick fights with NFL players. Think of all the stupid things Trump has done that, that no politician would ever do, the next Trump isn't going to do those things. So you have to be, as a Democrats, you have to be thinking bigger. You have to be thinking, how do I defeat this phenomenon once and for all? Not like, oh, he's screwed up. Great. Now we get back in.
1: It seems to me where you're going here is that what we really need is a progressive like a Bernie Sanders who would raise the minimum wage, improve schools, bring a Medicare for all, and actually make life affordable and better for ordinary middle- and working-class people.
0: Yes. You know, I don't want to put any proper names on it, Okay, like a certain senator from Vermont. Okay. But <laughs> if, okay, so, look, the, the, the bottom line is this. If, if what I just said about the, the economy booming and wages going up, if that really comes to pass, it's gonna be hard to beat Trump in three years, if that really does happen. If that doesn't happen, and things continue along the way they have since the 1970s. Wages don't grow, manufacturing gets offshore. It's a heaven on earth for the wealthy. You know, greater inequality. All the same trends that, that you and I have talked about so many times on this program. If those trends continue, yes, the Democrats have to figure out a way to speak to that. They cannot keep approaching it in the way that they have. And what I what I mean by that is the sort of the the, the Clinton and Obama approach where you identify yourself with what I like to call the ideology of the 1990s, the catechism of tech, bank, and globe,
2: (laughs) (laughs) that everybody
0: knows is nothing but an excuse for an out-of-touch elite. Assuming that everything just continues the way it has, sooner or later, we're going to be right back at the starting point. There's really only one set Of successful politics for an age like this one and it's the kind of politics we identify with the party of Franklin Roosevelt the party of Lyndon Johnson the party of the New Deal and what Trump has offered is this kind of weird replica of that but I have always said John and I've said it on this program so many times the real thing would beat the
1: fake the real thing would beat the fake Tom Frank wrote a fantastic piece about the Trump re-election nightmare and how we can stop it for the new issue of Harper's. Tom, thank you for reminding us about the real thing and the fake. It's always great to have you on the show.
0: John, anytime. It's my pleasure.
1: Next up, How can we explain the love affair with guns in Trump's America, especially after the killings at that high school in Parkland, Florida? Adam Hochschild has been thinking about that. He wrote about it for the New York Review, where he's a regular contributor. His books include To End All Wars, which is about World War I, and most recently, Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936-39. We talked about both of them here. He also teaches at the Graduate School of Journalism in Berkeley. Adam Hochschild, welcome back. Hi, John. Good to be back here with you. Well, you went to a gun show recently. What was it like? Well, it was at
2: the Cow Palace, which is just south of San Francisco, Uh, an enormous uh, exhibition hall there, longer than a football field, 48,000 square feet, and every inch of this huge room was packed with tables displaying every conceivable you know type of of rifle, handgun, an ancient musket that fired uh, with black powder, a uh, Japanese gun that fired a bullet that was an inch and a half in diameter, plus all kinds of survival in the wilderness gear: a beef jerky, bear jerky. Uh, emergency flashlights, uh, uh, knives of all sorts. And um, I I was also struck by the fact that scattered among all this stuff, which is appealing to gun lovers and hunters, uh, there were all kinds of bumper strips and cloth patches that you could uh, sew on your jacket, He's saying things like, uh, jihad-free zone, uh, <laughs> mm. 9-11 was an inside job, uh, the wall, if you build it, they can't come, uh, mm. a hunting permit unlimited for ISIS, uh, and on and on like that.
1: Do you, think, uh, uh, do you think anybody at the Cow Palace there voted for Hillary?
2: I doubt it. I doubt it. I would say that, uh, you know, 90% of the people there were men, 98% of them were white, and I didn't see anybody who looked like a Hillary voter. (laughs) Maybe a few people working these tables selling stuff who'd been sent out by the store they worked at, but uh, otherwise I think not.
1: I was interested to learn from your article in the New York Review that the Koch brothers have been major funders of the NRA. You know, I don't think the Koch brothers really believe that having guns in their homes will enable to, them to shoot intruders trying to rape their wives and kill their children. Why do you think the Koch brothers are major funders of the NRA?
2: Uh, yeah, I think they their homes have other protections uh, around them, I'm sure. Uh I think for two reasons. One is that the NRA is so effective at turning out right-wing voters. You know, they've got 5 million members, and their real strength is that these are people who vote according to what the NRA tells them. Every member of Congress, every member of the Senate, every state legislator is rated on his or her attitude towards guns, and people who join the NRA who are not all gun owners in the country, but those who care most passionately about that, and they tend to be people who, you know, where owning a gun is an important part of defining who they are, uh, they will vote. Uh, they turn out to vote in huge numbers. There's a very high proportion of them vote, and they vote according to what the NRA tells them. And, you know, a legislator's position on guns, uh, if they're very... Uh, you know, pro-gun. The chances are that on all the things that really matter to the cokes and their ilk, which is lowering taxes on business and uh, eliminating regulations of every sort, the same legislator is going to be in favor of those things. I think for the cokes also, there's another benefit, which is that the more noise the NRA makes, the more it spreads the idea that the real source of political power in this country comes from owning a gun and not from owning, say, a, you know, $50 billion industrial and commercial empire. Yes.
1: Excellent point. You know, uh, Obama was a great thing for the NRA and for the gun manufacturers because they could say Obama is coming to take away your guns, then you won't be able to shoot the people who are coming to, you know, rape your wife and kill your children. And so you need to vote Republican. You need to buy more guns before Obama takes them away. Today, of course, nobody thinks Trump is going to come and take away their guns. But this fantasy of the 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 uh, ATF agents or I don't know who coming to take away your guns has become a very powerful one in that far right sector of America. Did you see signs of that fantasy at the gun show in Daily City?
2: Oh, I saw one bumper sticker on sale that said uh, "Gun free zones kill people." Uh, things like the, things like that. But I think, you know, we have to sort of step back and analyze that fear. They're going to take my guns away from a a psychological perspective, because the people who are most passionate about this, they tend to be, as you say, people from red states, from rural areas, uh, from poorer parts of the country, from Appalachia, from the Deep South, and so on. And... These are folks who have seen a lot else in their lives taken away. Jobs, for mm-hmm. one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are areas of the country where unemployment tends to be higher, where you know industries like coal mining have shut down, where manufacturing of all sorts has uh, fled the United States for low-wage countries overseas or is gone forever because of automation. And so... You know, these are people who've seen a lot taken away, and uh, and I can feel for them. You know, they've suffered. And I think the NRA very shrewdly focuses their fear on the idea they're going to take away your guns. And this is something that uh, politicians can promise, you know, we'll never take them away. Whereas, of course, you can't really promise. That you're never going to take, you know, that somebody's job isn't going to, be, yeah. going to disappear because everybody knows it's a very unstable economic climate, particularly for lower wage workers and in manufacturing type industries.
1: You know, we haven't said very much about Trump up to this point. Where does Trump enter this story? What's Trump's place in the, the uh, fantasy world of, of those the far right wing uh, NRA members?
2: Well, he's the first sitting president in three decades that has addressed an NRA convention. And he told them, you know, you have a friend in the White House and your Second Amendment rights will forever be protected and so on. Uh, I think, to me, the scary thing uh, about Trump's relationship to guns is this. One branch of this phenomenon is the rise of the militia movement. Yes, yes. And we've seen these folks, you know, we saw them marching through Charlottesville, Virginia last August in their camouflage jackets and so on at that rally trying to prevent the Robert E. Lee statue from being taken down where there was, you know, somebody killed by one of these right-wingers who rammed his car into a crowd. Uh, We've seen them at these uh, land occupations in the western states, in Nevada and Oregon, um, where... You know, armed militia gather because they, you know, they're in defense of uh, some rancher who wants to graze his, his cattle on national forest land uh, and so forth. So they're the, And there are also armed militia who have, as volunteers, gone and patrolled near the Mexican border. What's ominous to me is that under Trump, that number of armed militia groups in the United States has soared very ominously. Uh, The Southern Poverty Law Center, which counts these kinds of things very carefully, counted 165 armed militia groups in the United States in 2016. That number rose to 273 armed militia groups in the U.S. uh, last year, 2017, and I'm afraid of a couple of things there. One is that the next time there's one of these standoffs on an occupation of national forest land, such as we've seen, I can't imagine the Trump administration cracking down on people who are the concentrated essence of uh, his base. And is that going to encourage more occupations? Uh, I don't know, but I think it's something we have to worry about. The other thing, of course, is that At some point, Trump is going to be forced out of office, whether by being not re-elected in 2020 or impeached before then. What are these armed militia groups going to do then?
1: What are the armed militia groups going to do then? Adam Hochschild, he wrote about guns in Trump's America for the New York Review. It's a terrific piece. Adam, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Keep up the fire on Trump, okay? Okay. Next up, we're still trying to understand those white working class people who voted for Trump. Yes, most of his support came from regular Republicans, but the Democrats did lose some of their base in 2016, and that made a huge difference in the outcome, especially in places like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Indiana. Gary Young spent a month in Muncie, Indiana, reporting on the election season in 2016. Recently, he went back there to see whether Trump supporters had changed their minds about their man after seeing him in action in the White House for a year. Of course, Gary writes a column for The Nation. He's editor-at-large for The Guardian. He's also the author of the award-winning book, Another Day in the Death of America, a Chronicle of Ten Short Lives. It's a book about kids killed by guns. We reach in today in London. Gary, welcome back.
3: Thanks for me,
1: Jim. Well, Trump won Muncie, Indiana. He carried the county, I think it was 53% to 40 for Hillary. First of all, tell us why you picked Muncie, Indiana in 2016 as your typical American town.
3: Well, I... I picked it less because it was typical and more because it was, in some ways, emblematic. There were, there were two main reasons. The first was that both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump had won the primaries in Delaware County, where Muncie sits. And so, to the extent that I felt that the election was an insurgent, election, I thought that here in Muncie I would get the kind of dissident views of both sides. There was that. And then the the second reason was because Muncie was the focus of a study in the 20s by the Lint, a, a couple of sociologists called the Lints, called Middletown. And they painted Muncie as the archetype of American town, and they did this. I think they lived there for about a year or maybe even longer, and they did this long qualitative and quantitative survey of what they portrayed as emblematic of middle America, the kind of place that Sarah Palin might have called the real America if Delaware County hadn't twice voted for Obama before it voted for Trump.
1: We find Trump in the White House grotesque, almost unbearable, have the Trump voters in Muncie changed their minds about him after seeing how grotesque he has been for the past year?
3: Well, when it came to the Trump voters in Muncie, there were two things that I found intriguing. The first was, pretty much to a person, they thought he'd done a good job.
1: Let me just underline that. Pretty much to a person... The Trump voters in Muncie, a year after the election, thought he had done a good job. I find that incomprehensible. Well,
3: uh, well, one of them said, not just a good job, a great job. But but actually, as they spelt it out, it made sense to me. I was there just um, at the the turn of the year. They said, look, he's passed a a great tax bill. They thought it was a great tax bill. He has uh, done a lot of deregulation. The stock market's up, unemployment is is down, or at least not, you know, not not terrible. And um, yeah, he's done pretty well in terms of doing what he said he would do. And I got to tell you, I remember doing uh, some pieces after the first year of Obama's presidency, and the Trump voters, with some cause were more enthusiastic about Trump as a president than Obama voters were about Obama as a president at the same time,
1: Wow! with cause. Who are these Trump people who like him so much? Maybe they're all country club Republicans who only care about lower taxes. Maybe they're all evangelicals who only care about abortion.
3: The the ones I spoke to, that wasn't true. I think um, only one... Of the four or five that I interviewed at length, only one of them voted for him in the primary. Huh. Uh, one of them voted for Kasich, who, wow. you know, couldn't have been further away from Trump. Yeah. One of them didn't vote at all. One of them liked Ben Carson. One was definitely an abortion, you know, a voter who, who voted on abortion. One was a, a doctor and um, a closer to what you'd call a country club Republican. Most of these people were people that liberals had put me onto and said, you should speak to so-and-so. They're pretty reasonable. Hmm. They're, they've got stuff to say. One of them certainly was very well thought of in the back part of Muncie among local organizers there. So these were not you know, fringe types. And one was a very working class woman who I spoke to um, when I was there last time. So, yeah, you'd be surprised. <laughs> you'd be surprised. But the other thing that they pretty much all said was when it comes to decorum, he's awful. One of them said, I would not have him as a friend. Huh. You know, they talked about, He's tweeting, the one who said, I don't think he's done, I think he's done a good, not just a good job, but a great job, was bemoaning the fact of the kind of absence of the American statesman. And I said, would you think Trump's a statesman? And he said, no, I don't think he is, no. He talked about the kind of embarrassment, that he's embarrassing America abroad, the very people who thought that he was doing a good job. And this was intriguing to me because it feels like the issue of character in the presidency has been dislocated in a way that I'm not familiar with. So you could think that the president was, that had done a good job and that he was a terrible person. Mm. So gone, it feels, are the days of, you elect the guy that you would like to have a drink with. This is, you elect the boring alcoholic at the bar <laughs> that you want nothing to do with, but you give him the keys to drive him to the home somehow. <laughs> That did surprise me.
1: Okay, enough about the, the, the Trump voters. What about the Democrats and the liberals in Muncie? How are they feeling at this point? Did anybody in Muncie go to the Women's March? Is there a Black Lives Matter group in Muncie?
3: The thing that was interesting on the liberal side about Muncie was that pretty much everybody that I spoke to in Muncie a year earlier who was liberal was doing something now that they hadn't done before, was active in some way. Dave Ring, who runs the local downtown farm stand, an organic food store, he's, he's um, running for office. There were others who put their names down to campaign for candidates, whereas before they hadn't bothered, but Indiana is, gonna, is one Senate, on the Republicans are hoping to pick up, and people said, well, ordinarily this wouldn't be something I would do, but I have to do this now. Some had gone to do the Women's March, indeed. And uh, others had gone to the Women's March in Indianapolis. There is a Muncie Resists organisation, and they had had a uh, Black Lives Matter meeting as well as, over the year, a series of kind of town halls about health care and, um, and other things. There were people who hadn't been active... For years, who had done phone banking on the uh, health care issue when it was under threat. So pretty much everybody, and they were all sparked by the same thing, which was this has happened now. We, we, we feel that we were asleep in the wheel to some, some extent, and skin's in the game. We have to be involved. We have to be active. You
1: mentioned that Indiana has a Democratic senator incumbent who's up for re-election this November. His name is Joe Donnelly. The the Democrats have to hold on to that seat if they're going to win control of the Senate. Did you get any sense of the politics of Muncie and whether the Republicans are going to be able to recapture the Senate seat? It is a Republican state.
3: No, I didn't. I didn't get, I mean, I didn't go much about my, my My project in Muncie has always been very much focused on, on Muncie, but I would. there were a few things that, in the time that I was there the second time, made me think it would be possible uh, for the Democrats to hold on, but secondly, that it wouldn't be inevitable. What made it possible was the activity, that people were out there and they were active and they were active, in their, both in their communities and, you know, on social media that didn't a kind of local, uh, a training session for people who wanted to step up and do more things in the community, a non-partisan one, and it was oversubscribed in like, uh, within a week, and it was predominantly liberals who had joined it. And, and that counts for something, yeah. that does count for something. Yeah. They're energized and they are motivated as they have not been before. The flip side was that I didn't get a real sense of the Democrats or liberals had processed why they lost, whatever you, whatever they think of why they lost. That when you said to them, well, wh- why do you think Trump won? Why do you think Trump won if he's so terrible, deplorable? They just kind of didn't really know. They, they just hadn't gone there, really. And... They're going to need to go there in order to be more effective. But in 2016, as well as Trump winning, the Republicans swept the board. They won. Uh, Evan Bay stood in an open seat for the Senate and lost. They lost the um, lieutenant governor. They lost most of their local races. They lost. So it wasn't just it wasn't just Trump. And so there has to be some reckoning, I think, uh, was that. And while I got a sense that the Trump support held strong for those that voted for him, I didn't get any sense that there was any new support coming in, that he wasn't bringing more people in. So I did get a sense that the Trump vote was soft, that embarrassment that people have with his behaviour would have an effect. Whereas the democrat kind of world was was much more um, was much more mobilized the local anti racist group had had bigger meetings there than, than it had than uh, than it ever had in the past every where one looked the League of women voters had more members than it had in the past so people were galvanized. I think that will make a difference, but I think without analysis of where they lost, it remains to be seen whether how decisive
1: difference it is. Gary Young, columnist for The Nation, he wrote about his return to Muncie for The Guardian. Gary, thanks for your fantastic work. Thanks for talking with us today.
3: Thanks for having me, Jim.
1: Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, Where Sports and Politics Collide hosted by the sports editor of The Nation and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com. Edge of sports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer, Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
0: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too.